Tonight, I'd like to continue our series of Sunday evening messages now with two more character studies. Uh, not comparing a man and a woman tonight, but a group of men and a group of women. We're going to be comparing them, and they're not as well known as some of the other people in Scripture, some of the major Bible characters. Let me just mention this. The series is entitled Life Lessons from Lesser Knowns, and leading off is what I refer to as the Zalafihad Five. Maybe you don't know them under that name, but certainly you've heard of Noah, correct? Um, everybody here's heard of Noah, uh, but maybe not this Noah. She and her four sisters are the Zalafihad Five. Now, for those of you that were here last Sunday night, this may be confusing, but we learned that her was a him, and Noah is a her tonight. Does everybody understand that? Her was a him, but Noah is a her. And the five of the Zilafi had five, their names are Mala, Noah, Hagla, if you're in the habit of uh, thinking about biblical names to name your children or suggest or something, Hagla probably wouldn't be a good thing to name your daughter. She wouldn't understand years from now. Milka and Terza. So Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Terza. And um, they're very significant. How many of you have heard of them or Zalafi had? Um, probably not. Oh, I see a hand or two. Um, again, they're not real well-known, but lessons from the lesser-knowns. And here's why they were significant. They make possible the continuation of a godly heritage in their family by fighting for their rights to be included in that legacy, in that heritage, in that which gets passed on. They're among the first anywhere to champion women's rights. And obviously that's a battle that still continues today, and everyone's aware of that. Sometimes Christians get confused as to where they should stand regarding women's rights. It's clear to many of us that the Bible assigns different roles for men and women in the church and in the home, and I don't apologize for that, and I don't back down from that. The Bible makes it very clear there are roles that are given to men and women in the church and in the home. They're not the same roles, and that's okay. We're, we're all right with that. But does that carry over? into the business world? Should women in the marketplace or the educational world, in the neighborhood, in politics, should they be given the same rights? Should they have the same opportunities, the same wages, the same respect as men? Or should they always be made to feel outranked, underpaid, overlooked, and disrespected? I think tonight we will see clearly that in God's Word, God is fully supportive of women's rights. Yes, he has assigned different roles in the church and the home, but they are distinct institutions purposely designed by God to demonstrate particular truths. So let's see, first of all tonight, what the Zalafihad Five can teach us, specifically can teach us about continuing with an heresy, with a lineage, and uh, being able to do that in a great way. In Numbers chapter 2633, we find out what the issue is. And if you, if you have an outline in front of you, it'll, it'll start out with what is the issue. And the issue before us uh, in Numbers chapter 26, verse 33, it simply says this. 
Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, had no sons but daughters. Later, and it says this in the NIV here with this verse, but later it will also make this reference, that he had no sons but only daughters, which seems kind of demeaning, and that's not the intent of anything but to show us what it was like at that particular time. That's how, that's how daughters would have been viewed. And then their name, the names of the daughters of Zelophehad were again named, and we know them. little background before we get into the rest of this story, and background that is largely taken from other sources that I've consulted. But nowhere in the ancient Mediterranean or the Near East were women accorded the freedom that they enjoy in modern Western society. The general pattern was one of subordination of women to men just as slaves were subordinate to the free and young were subordinate to the old. Women were viewed as chattel or property. Women were something to be owned, something to be used. Women's life centered on marriage, children, the home. Domestic tasks were very time-consuming, involving spinning, weaving, fetching water, grinding corn, baking bread, washing clothes, taking care of children. I know what some of you are thinking. We're still on that same rut in, in some cases. Male children were more highly esteemed than female. Baby girls actually sometimes were left to die by exposure. Boys received a better education than their sisters. Marriages were generally arranged with girls being betrothed to husbands older than themselves, thus perpetuating the pattern of subordination, not to mention earlier widowhood. The husband had much greater sexual freedom than the wife. Women had few, if any, political rights. In most cases, women were not permitted to own property. And it was into a culture and a time like that that the Zalafi had five entered. Let's turn to Numbers chapter 27, and we can read about them. Numbers chapter 27. I'm not going to read the whole scripture at one time, but we'll do it in pieces so that we can see the story as it develops. But if you will turn to Numbers 27, and we're going to look first of all at verses 1 through 4. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Terzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. From the background that I just mentioned a moment ago and from your knowledge of the scriptures in that time, I think it's pretty obvious that what these women did took a lot of courage. Just if nothing else happens, we can say that these were courageous women because they were standing up against a lot of the things that were going on at their particular time. You'll notice verse 2 once again. They stood before Moses. 
the leader of the entire nation. And before Eleazar, he was the chief priest. And before the chiefs and all the congregation, that means that this was everybody was there. That means that they didn't have a private appointment with somebody, and if it didn't go real well, there wouldn't be any embarrassment to them. They could just walk away, and one individual maybe would have been involved. But this is in front of everyone. This is kind of like public speaking. You know what the number one phobia in our country is? It's public speaking. These women had to make the request at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the place of great importance, standing before these important leaders and everyone else. What they did was certainly unprecedented. They had to bring up a whole new concern in front of the country's dignitaries and all the rest of the people. These ladies also showed spiritual discernment. If you look at verse 3 again, they wanted to be sure to mention that their father was not among those who rebelled against the Lord in the rebellion of Korah, but he wasn't perfect either. He was one of those who had died in the wilderness. Most of the men of a certain age had died in the wilderness. Only Joshua and Caleb were allowed to continue to live beyond that particular time frame. So these ladies showed spiritual discernment, recognizing the sin of their father, but also recognizing that he was not one of those who rebelled directly against God. They made a reasonable request to protect their father's name and to keep property within the family. Regardless of what would happen, these women are to be applauded for their courage, their insight, their innovation, their spiritual discernment, and their wisdom. And I stop and ask a question, are these kinds of qualities a matter of gender? Are these qualities that these women, it's a surprise that that's what they were, usually this is what we think of as men, no, not at all. There was a lady who was quite a bit of an innovator, um, one who, who set a, a real strong example for all of us. You remember Sally Ride? Anybody, not personally, but you, okay, you remember Sally Ride, the astronaut who absolutely earned her way to be in space. To begin with, she's brilliant, having excelled in such tough subjects as X-ray astronomy and free electron lasers at Stanford University, from which she holds a PhD. Out of 8,000 applicants, she was chosen to be one of 35 in the 1978 class of astronauts. NASA officials gave her high marks, indeed saying that she had the right stuff. Sally Ride's experiments in space not only raised high the banner of women's expertise, but also signaled a perceptible change in America's social attitudes. Are brains, skill, courage, and stamina a matter of gender? Of course not. But up until the 1970s, women were still fighting in order to be acknowledged with any type of honor. Uh, it's something that, that started a long, long time ago and continues to our day. How was the issue handled? They came with a request before Moses and all these people. So what happened next? Let's look at verse 5. How the issue was handled very simply. Moses brought their case before the Lord. Now, that's a, that's a great statement. It could have been dismissed 
as out of hand. It could have been ridiculed. Can you imagine all the guys who would have been there in that assembly? All those who would have been fighting to keep the, the things the way they'd always been? It could have been sent to a black hole committee and never emerged again. We'll get back to you. Could have gotten the ladies in trouble for not knowing their rightful place. They could have been told, if you want land, we're going to exile you to the desert. You can have all the land that you want. You can go back to that wilderness. They could have been told, we've never done it that way before, and we're not about to start now. It's worked well to this point. But none of that happened. Moses took it right to the top. Moses, it says, brought their case before the Lord. He treated this as a very serious question. It needed the Lord's direct answer. How was the issue resolved? Let's pick up the story in verse 6. And the Lord said to Moses, I love these next words, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. You know, that's, that's solving the issue right away. The answer is right there. Um, Moses took it to the top, and God being at the top said immediately, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. And it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and rule, as the Lord commanded Moses. Before entering the promised land, it was good to get some of these things settled. It was good to have them written down. It became the law of the land. So how was the issue resolved? God decided the ladies were right. And in this case, the Lord gave a favorable decision to the women. In fact, the response of the Lord even went beyond their request. They requested landed property. We deserve to have this property that was our father's. But God gave them a hereditary possession of landed property. It then became up to them to give that to whomever they wanted to. They could leave that to whomever they wanted to. The point seems to be that not only would they receive the property, they could transfer it to all their heirs that they wanted. This led to a countrywide law in verses 8 through 11. If you glance back at those verses, it set up the property succession for a variety of possible scenarios reminds me of the Presidential Succession Act to provide for a new president in the case that the present president isn't allowed to continue or can't continue his duties. The president would then uh, be succeeded by the vice president in that succession, and then the uh, Speaker of the House would be next in line, the president pro temp, the Senate, and then the cabinet positions according to how they rate them. Can you imagine five obscure, unknown ladies come before everybody in the country and ask for something that goes to God to answer, who comes back and says, yes, the ladies are right. The request is something that they can ask for and should be given. And not only that, 
let's make sure that we think this through and get this to be the law of the land and we will include other similar kinds of situations at the same time. There's even more to this story in chapter 36. They were told that they did have to marry within a particular clan because they wanted to keep the, uh, the land in the father's tribe and all that sort of thing. And it was very interesting that their response was a very positive one. It says simply this in, um, in chapter 36, verse 10. The daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded Moses. So it adds another virtue to what we know about them. They could have argued that point too, but they didn't. This was God's answer. They were content with God's answer. They did exactly what he said. And one of the commentators puts it this way. He says, the book of Numbers, which so often presents the rebellion of God's people against his grace and in defiance of his will, ends here on a happy note. These noble women who were concerned for their father's name and their own place in the land obeyed the Lord. Significantly, in a book so marred by disobedience, there is a final statement of obedience, and it is in the lives of these noble daughters of Zelophehad. We must observe that we would likely never have heard of him, that is Zelophehad, had he had sons instead of these daughters. Point being, their obedience helps us to end the book of Numbers on a happy note when we see their obedience. And these particular ladies were probably a whole lot better to Zelophehad than five sons that he might have had. Reminds of another incident in the scriptures. The year was approximately 483 B.C. And we know him as King Xerxes. Other translations will call him King Ahasuerus. He was hosting a week-long feast. Unfortunately, the feast got out of hand. There no doubt was a lot of drinking going on. And on the last day of the banquet, it says the king was drunk. He commanded that Queen Vashti be brought into the hall to show off her beauty. Do you remember what she did? She refused. As a result, she lost her position as queen. One of the historians, Herodotus, suggests that Vashti may have feared for her dignity and for that reason said no. If that were the case, it underscores a fundamental problem of the way some men perceive women. It's not a new thing, all that we keep seeing with Me Too and all the other kinds of things, with the way that men have treated women down through the many, many centuries, continuing on to our time. In nearly every culture, women have been used by men who have seen themselves as superior to them. Interesting that Jesus never treated a woman in a demeaning way. Instead, he elevated the status of women in a male-dominated society to one of equal dignity and worth. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul declared that oneness in Christ transcends all distinctions between men and women. And you know this verse. Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so I probably don't need to say this. I hope I don't need to say this. But for any of the men who are here, any demeaning attitude, comment, or action toward women by man is contrary to God's word. It's every woman's right to be treated with respect 
dignity and honor. And if our culture isn't living that way, I trust that as salt, light, and fragrance, that's how we live. And that's how people will hear us speak about and to the ladies. There was one more time that these ladies showed courage. You might think that this is enough after all they've done. And imagine the ripples that have come from their audience with the nation and with the nation's leaders. Now, one more thing. You would think that maybe they don't want to do one more thing. Maybe they don't want to press their luck, if, if, if you use that expression. But in Joshua chapter 17, let me read these verses to you. Joshua chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. It says, Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Terzah. They approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. What do we have here? A reminder. It was all set up in advance. Moses was gone. Now the land was being allotted and they needed to go and remind Joshua and the leaders one more time. Could have had a different outcome, but it did not. And they, they continued to win the day. So going a second time to the leaders to remind them of the promise that Moses made to them. Now that's our female side tonight. We're comparing. Now we're going to look at a, a different scenario now. And I, I call this handing down a godly heritage. And the man who's principally involved is a man by the name of Ahikam. And we read about him in Jeremiah chapter 26 and verse 24. Um, Ahikam, and we'll get to him and what he did and what that verse is all about in just a few moments. Let me introduce Ahikam and two others in his family line in just a moment. But let me introduce it now by saying this. Think about a four-way relay race, four-person race relay race. You understand what I'm talking about when they hand the baton off, they're running around and they, uh, there are four of them. In a four-way relay, which runners have the greatest chance of failing and ruining the race? Which of those four runners have the greatest chance of failing? Okay, I heard first and the last. I heard all of them. If I listen, I'm going to hear my voice soon, and I'm going to say, the second and the third runners have the greatest chance of failing. Why? They have to pass the baton and receive the baton. They've got to do two things, and it's very easy to drop that baton. Uh, they have the greatest chance of, of losing the race. A high cam, the gentleman that we're looking at right now, a high cam was the middleman in a three-person relay race. He took the baton from his father, Shaphan, and passed it on to his son, Gedaliah. When we think in terms of a relay race, we think in terms of families, descendants. We think about a godly heritage. We think about a great legacy. We think in terms of who's passing on that baton of the Christian faith to the next generation. Does it get passed or does it get dropped? 
Does it get dropped because of the one who's handing it off or the one who's dropping it? It, it doesn't matter. What matters is that um, that baton has got to keep on going. And we see the example of these three gentlemen who are doing that right now. And it's very, very interesting that as we see this, we've seen the five daughters of Zalafihad. They had to earn what they did. They had to go out and grab the baton themselves from someone else. These three gentlemen we're going to talk about tonight, they simply handed it the way it normally, ordinarily is handed off. So a high cam is going to be the middleman in the three-person relay, and uh, we're going to look at the first one in that race, a man by the name of Shaphan, who was a high-ranking official in the reign of Josiah. He was referred to as the secretary, and we read about him in 2 Kings 22. I'd like to invite you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 22, if you will, please. 2 Kings chapter 22, and we pick up in verse 3. Josiah is now the king in Judah. Josiah will prove to be one of the very good kings. He was young when he took his office, but he will turn out to be a very good king, and there will be revival during his time. There will be reform. There will be a lot of positive things happening. As we look at chapter 22 of 2 Kings verse 3, in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house." that is, to the carpenters and to the builders, to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. And then something amazing happens. Verse 8 tells us, And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. That book of the law had been lost. They didn't have God's instructions on many things. But now they did. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the Lord. And then what happens? They read that book and the whole nation is changed because now they're reminded of how God wanted them to do things. This was the book of the law. This was God's word to them. So Josiah sent Shaphan to Hilkiah the priest. This is in the year 622 BC with the instructions and the funds for the repair and renovation of the temple. He possibly was the one to oversee the project since when Hilkiah discovered the book, he gave it to Shaphan. And then he reported to King Josiah and read the book of the law to him. So he had the privilege of delivering it, a baton of its own, and then reading it to King Josiah. Josiah appointed Shaphan as part of the committee to inquire about the authenticity of the book, which they did. 
Josiah's reign then was that of a great revival. The remainder of the references to Shaphan occur in the activities of his sons. He had three sons, one of them a high cam we're going to look at further. Another son that we're not going to really look at was Elisa, who was an official messenger of King Zedekiah and a delegation sent to Nebuchadnezzar. He also carried Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Babylon. He was somebody that was well-respected, somebody that obviously was well-brought-up. There was a third son, Gemariah, who had a room or chamber in the temple from which Baruch, the secretary of Jeremiah, read aloud the ominous prophecy of Jeremiah later on. And Jeremiah was among those who pleaded with King Jehoiakim not to burn the scroll that Jeremiah had written, basically where God said, here's where you're wanting. Here are some serious problems. And the the king decided to just burn it up. He cut it up into pieces and threw it in the fire, even though people like Amariah were telling him not to do that. That was God's word. But the one son of Shaphan that we want to stay with is a high cam. A high cam, the middle man in the relay. And there's not a lot to be said about him, but there's some things that are very important. In, in one instance, in 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 12 through 14, we read some things about a high cam. It says, And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and a high cam, the son of Shaphan, and Akbor, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan, the secretary, and a Azaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah, the priest, and Ahikam, and Akbor, and Shaphan, and Azaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, son of Harhaz, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her, and she validated that this was, in fact, the law of the Lord. I don't know if you caught the point that was here, but we have these two individuals, Shaphan, and now with him on that same committee is a high camp. Father and son working together in a very, very important development that absolutely turned the nation of Judah around at this particular time. So Ahikam becomes a middleman in one of these races. He's handed a baton by his father, Shaphan. And what will he do with that? Well, he's going to pass that on. We'll find out in just a moment also. Because he becomes the father of Gedaliah, who would become the governor of Judah after Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C. And when the Babylonians left someone local In order to be a ruler, they left the third one in this string of individuals. Something else about Ahikam that I alluded to earlier. His high position in Jehoiakim's court was doubtless instrumental in saving Jeremiah's life. There were other prophets who were often killed or imprisoned, and there was one named Uriah that just before the time of Jeremiah was killed and Jehoiakim wanted to do the same thing to Jeremiah. He wanted to have him killed. Jeremiah 26, 24 says this, 
But the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that he was not given over to the people to be put to death. Ahikam became one who saved the prophet Jeremiah. And so we find this family very instrumental in passing on God's word to the nation, preserving the great prophet Jeremiah so that he could continue the work that God wanted him to do until the time was, was finished for the Lord to do that. So Ahikam's high position in Jehoiakim's court was doubtless instrumental in saving Jeremiah's life. He was a lifesaver. And then he handed the baton on to Gedaliah. Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 14, tells us that even Nebuzaradan, who was the chief officer for Nebuchadnezzar, turned Jeremiah the prophet over to Gedaliah. He turned him over to him. He trusted him enough to entrust Jeremiah to him. We also find out that later on, Jeremiah was given an option. You can leave or you can stay here. And Jeremiah opted to stay there, and he stayed with Gedaliah. Some comments that are made about Gedaliah. The narratives reveal Gedaliah in a very attractive light as one who possessed the confidence both of his own people and their conquerors. That would be the Babylonians. A man of rare wisdom and tact, and of upright, transparent character whose kindly nature and generous disposition would not allow him to think evil of a brother, a man altogether worthy of the esteem in which he was held by succeeding generations of Jews. So Gedaliah, the baton successfully passed to him, another godly man recognized by those around him. Well, how did they do in the relay race, these three? How did they do? Three generations who supported the Lord, who were influenced by Jeremiah. Jeremiah, you could say, was their track coach. Jeremiah was the one who instructed them. He was the one who influenced them for the Lord. They paid attention. And listen to this. This to me is astounding. Shaphan helped to save Judah spiritually because he was instrumental in having God's word passed on to Josiah. Ahikam saved Jeremiah physically, and Gedaliah saved the Jews and Jeremiah. And in fact, he was killed serving the Lord. Someone has written what I'm about to read, and it could be perceived as um, not kind to infants. And I hope you'll receive it in the spirit that it's not meant to be unkind to infants, but to bring out a real truth to us about what happens if we don't pass the baton on to the next generation. When it comes to rearing children, every society is only 20 years away from barbarism. 20 years is all we have to accomplish the task of civilizing the infant's who are born into our midst each year. These savages know nothing of our language, our culture, our religion, our values, or customs of interpersonal relations. 
The infant is totally ignorant about communism, fascism, democracy, civil liberties, the rights of the minority is contrasted with the prerogatives of the majority, respect, decency, honesty, custom, conventions, and manners. The barbarians must be tamed if civilization is to survive. Do you understand what that's saying? We're 20 years away from entering into barbarism if we don't pass the baton on to those, even though he described them in a way that you would never want to describe those cute little cuddly babies as savages and all that. But uh, if you believe in the whole idea of sin nature, then you understand where they're coming from. There's an atheist by the name of Max Jukes, spelled J-U-K-E-S. He lived a very godless life. All the reports indicate there was nothing at all good about the life that he lived. He married someone like himself, an ungodly girl, and from their union, I'm going to tell you some of their descendants, there were 310 who died penniless. 310 who died basically as wards of the state. 150 of their descendants were criminals. Seven were murderers. 100 were drunks. And more than half of the women were prostitutes. Not that this is terribly important, but his 540 descendants cost the state one and a quarter million dollars. But it works both ways. There's a record of a great American man of God by the name of Jonathan Edwards, and now you can put it in this time period because he and Max Jukes were from the same era. Jonathan Edwards married a godly girl. Jonathan Edwards was a godly man himself. An investigation was made of 1,394 known descendants of Jonathan Edwards, of which 13 became college presidents, 65 college professors, three United States senators, 30 judges, 100 lawyers, 60 physicians, 75 army and navy officers, 100 preachers and missionaries, 60 authors of prominence, a vice president of the United States, 80 who became public officials other than the officials that we mentioned before in other capacities, 295 college graduates, among whom were governors of states and ministers to foreign countries. And uh, by the way, again, not that this is terribly important, but his descendants did not cost the state a single penny. Proverbs 10.7 says, The memory of the just is blessed. As we compare five ladies and these three men, we see that there were some things that were done very, very well. And they were able to leave a godly heritage to others. The Zalafi had five save the land. They also preserved the name of their father. And remember, I said this before, they weren't handed a baton. They had to go and get it themselves. We're looking for heroines. Uh, and we, we want to we, we look no further than right here in the book of Numbers to see that. And Shaphan, Ahikam, and Gedaliah saved a nation and a prophet. Their godly heritage was handed down from one 
to the next to the next. And the point is simply this. Though both the men and the women in the Scriptures tonight, though they were different in many ways, there were some similarities because we saw courage, we saw determination, we saw faith, we saw spiritual discernment. Their descendants would have the benefit of being brought up with a rich heritage. But here's the important question, and I'm going to close with this. What kind of heritage will your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren receive from you? How are you at passing on a baton? And the baton and the opportunities we have are limited. But how will you do in making sure that every chance that you get your children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, it could be nephews and nieces or a lot of other relationships. How good will you be doing in passing on the name of Jesus to them? Making sure they understand that Jesus is not a curse word, that Jesus is the Son of God who died for their sins. So let me encourage each one of us, what kind of a heritage will those important to us receive from us? We've got a lot of biblical examples we have one that I didn't mention. Timothy is a product, once again, of that. His mother was Eunice and his grandmother was Lois, and it was handed down from one to the next to the next. And then from Timothy, the one who said, go out and find faithful people and entrust the message to them. The ripples of this go on and on and on. So remember when you used to throw rocks in a pond and the ripples would go out? Think of your more important ripples we close in prayer now. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had briefly to look at the heritage, the legacy left behind by certain individuals. I pray that it would cause us to think in terms of ourselves and that which we're going to leave to the significant people who are following us, blood relatives as well as others that you bring into our lives. But help us to take seriously how important it is to pass it on. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.